This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, May 16th of 2019, it's episode 153. In this episode, Kyle Rudge from Geekdom House and Mythos and Inc. joins us to talk about publishing. Plus, what we'd do with superpowers, Feng Shui 2, Innocence, Grant's stupid face, and more. Let's do the thing. Okay. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Kyle. Hi, Kyle. Hello. 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 We've got Kyle Rudge with us again. Um, last time you were here was episode 68, so it's been entirely too oh, long. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I looked back at that and I was like, wow, the time gets away from you if you don't keep an eye on it. <laughs> I only vaguely remember what we talked about. Breaking down boundaries. Yeah, that was the name of the episode. Uh, okay, gotcha. <laughs> yeah. We're going to have some stuff to talk about, and I kind of your intro is going to lead straight into that. Yep. So we're going to we're going to hit some other quick news first, and then we're going to get talking with Kyle because he is an interesting guy with a lot of cool stuff to say. Mm-hmm. First of all, you probably have noticed that Grant is not here again. The reason why Grant wasn't here last time, the reason why he's not here this time, the reason why he's not going to be in the next two City on a Hill episodes, and the reason why he has stepped back from GMing the Sharn game is all the same. Unfortunately, Grant Bell's palsy has flared up again. If you weren't listening the last time this happened, it's like a partial paralysis that affects one side of your face. It makes your speech kind of slurred and is very uncomfortable. So anything requiring a lot of talking like gaming or podcasting is kind of off the table. So we're hoping he'll be back soon. These flare-ups can last a day or two, or they can last a month or two, and we really don't have any way of knowing how long it's going to be. So, he did mention that this one was particularly nasty feeling. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I know a lot of you are praying sorts because you know we're a Christian podcast. So, please pray for him. This is an unpleasant thing and not fun to go through, especially when you don't have any kind of a definitive like time window in sight. Yeah. Somewhat related to that, though, Chrissy, who you've heard on the podcast a couple of times, Grant's wife, may be running a World of Darkness Innocence game for us while his face recovers. So if that happens, that should be kind of cool. I know, Jenny, you're taking a break from gaming because of school things. So ha, school things! But <laughs> <laughs> I've got my own issues with school things. I may or may not talk about them after this announcement, because, wow, it sucks. All right. <laughs> but uh yeah so there are school things apparently but i and or grant eventually may have some interesting things to say about that so that may be coming soon also just a quick shout out and thank you to our listeners the last episode where we said we were running low on questions somewhat panicky but mm-hmm. when we said it was uh two days ago and three of you have already responded yes so thank you folks um we are still looking for a wider variety of questions from there are a couple of you who have been wonderful and have sent us a substantial backlog uh that i didn't realize because i <laughs> didn't understand how the question sheet that grant set up worked <laughs> um but the the point remains that it was still really only three people who had anything into us at all. Mm-hmm. So it's nice to have a larger pool to draw from. So thank you for sending stuff in. If any of the rest of you have questions, you know, please feel free to send those in. Also, in a bit of gaming news, I got a chance to play uh, Feng Shui 2 with our uh, part-time editor, Justin, uh, Ryan, and Ben from City on a Hill 
just a couple of days ago, and that will probably be going up. We had a lot of fun. If you have never played Feng Shui 2 and you're used to just playing something like D&D, it's a little bit different. It's designed to simulate an action movie, and it's a little less like serious, but it is so much fun. It plays very quickly. Um, sessions are typically measured in number of fights. That's kind of cool. And with that bit of housekeeping out of the way, we can let Kyle reintroduce himself. So, Kyle, you are an interesting and busy guy, and you've been up to quite a bit lately. So, tell us about that. A oh bit. man, that that story could go on for hours about all of the craziness that's gone on over the last few years. But uh, I guess to start, I'm uh, one of the founders of Geekdom House, which is a nerdy geek ministry up here in Canada. From that which part, Central Canada, Winnipeg. Uh, nobody knows where Manitoba oh, no is, way. so we're there. I, I, do, I, I have family in Manitoba, and I live in Ontario. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> uh, <laughs> My mom just came back from Winnipeg. Like, I'm not joking. <laughs> you know what? Maybe we know so, each yeah. other. You know, it's it's possible. <laughs> Maybe. It's it's possible we're, we're related. My family is oh, my. large and widespread. Oh, my goodness. So. <laughs> that would be really interesting. It would be. It would. <laughs> so uh, out of that, I've planted a church and now I'm pastor of something called The Hearth, which isn't a geek church. We're very careful not to say a geek church, but we are also very vocal about being a geek affirming church, which there's a subtle difference there. Whereas like, you know, spouses who aren't necessarily geeks still feel very welcome and at home in this place. So uh, then out of that, we also spawned a publishing company that me and the other co-founder of Geekdom House, Allison Alexander, we founded just this idea of we had so many writers and artists and we decided to found this publishing company called Mythos and Inc. And there was several things we wanted to do a little bit differently with it. Essentially, we we had all of this creativity around us that we needed a solid way of getting it out to people. And we had these skill sets, but we didn't feel like we could at least within Canada, operate with these skill sets within the guidelines, which is CRA charitable tax law. So we turned it into a business <laughs> at that point because we kind of had to. And yeah, it's been it's been a really interesting journey to build all of these things out and seeing them all kind of go. And I don't sleep, so it works out really, really well. <laughs> uh. Well, hopefully you can eventually get to the point where sleeping regularly and for eight hours a day is a thing because that can start to take a toll after well a while. yeah and and having a three-year-old who struggles to sleep is also the challenge so uh, <laughs> i might yeah, as well yeah. be working uh, yeah. during that time because i ain't getting anything else done so <laughs> yeah I know, I know that from some of the other members of our gaming group grant and chrissy not least among them <laughs> mm -hmm. their their kids are um six and three right now i want to say seven and I think she turns seven in July, actually. You're right. You're absolutely right. Sorry, I measure <laughs> I measure Grant and Christie's oldest age by Tyler's and my relationship because <laughs> it was right around the same time. Very, yeah, this, very the podcast yeah. started right around the same time too, only it was like a month for the podcast. Yeah. So hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a weird thing in our kind of little group of friends, I guess. All right, since Kyle was nice and kind of gave us that as a preamble, let's do our Patreon question and our scripture and then get into the real meat of this discussion. Mm -hmm. So let's see what... I can actually roll a d6 for the question table this time. <gasps> Yay! All right, three. Oh, this is an interesting one. Okay, so this comes from Kenning. Let's see here. If you got superpowers, say basic super strength and flight, what would you do with them? Now, the basic super strength and flight, this is a, a hypothetical, like, I can choose 
my preferred superpower here, and then what would I do I, with it? I think I think in the particular case here, we're just going to go with like the Superman power sweep. So oh. you've got you've got super strength, flight, and you're also very durable. What do you do? We're not allowed to get political. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're not, but okay. I, mean, I will say it in a way that that will hopefully not get political. Basically, end world hunger, world peace, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. All right. You're, you're, I'm gonna go your standard fare here, and then I'm also gonna go to my my favorite uh, pseudo planet Pluto, and also probably Titan, which is my favorite moon. <laughs> All right. Once I've finished the world peace and hunger thing. Well, you really think that's going to maintain once you leave to go to Pluto? <laughs> Have you thought the, this far ahead? I'm not allowed to get political. Oh, I'm fair. not allowed to get political here. Uh, I, I would say if, if those were my powers, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and quote Dr. Horrible in which uh, anarchy, which I rule. So <laughs> I don't know. I'm I'm a big I'm a big uh, Boy Scout fan when it comes to the comic natures. So the the Cyclops, the Captain America, the Superman. So I'd probably Boy Scout it very much the same as they have. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd probably do the same thing. Those are some of my favorite characters too. <laughs> I, I I loved when they merged uh, Superman and Cap into one character for that amalgam thing. I was like, oh look, they've created the most powerful moral compass ever seen. <laughs> you can't you can't go wrong with a cape and a shield. Yeah, yeah. What what could snag on what? It's, it'll be fine, <laughs> especially since the new shield was shaped like the Superman logo and had actual corners on it. Dad, no worries. <laughs> Edna Mode won't be bothered by that at all. Okay, <laughs> let's do our scripture and then we can get into our topic. Kyle, since you're the guest, I see you've got one passage that you wanted us to do in here. But if you want to do something else in addition to that, you are more than welcome. Just let us know. Oh, well, uh, like you wouldn't let me go through the whole the whole, you know, Genesis one through three. So I'll just stick to the first part, but allude to the others. <laughs> OK, <laughs> it's, it's actually like this is probably the verse that I preached on the most. Uh, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I, and I stay there simply because if, if, if that's all we knew of God, we would know that God was creative. And then as we continue further, we're, we're in his image and, and all of those things, we recognize that we are creative beings. And that idea of creativity and art, uh, I think, is inherent in all of us. And I can't stand when people say I'm not an artist. And then I can very quickly point out how they are. That to me is just that 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 thing of like this is where I I found my foundation where if I if I if I had anything if I struggle with anything I go back to that creativity and there's where I find God in my life. Yeah, it's funny my my boss at work, well, my immediate supervisor, which I suppose is a slightly different thing, but he you know, he's this very accomplished programmer. He's very good at coming up with, you know, little pieces of software that solve specific problems and stuff. And uh, he'll often say, you know, I'm not a creative person at all. And I'll be like, how many gigabytes of code have you written to solve different problems? He's like, yeah, but that's problem solving. I'm like, creative where does problem solving. Ah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> oh, people. Yeah. 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 It's like, I understand that you don't have a vivid imagination. You can't picture entire scenes in your head, but you are definitely creative. Mm -hmm. And the next passage we have here is Job 19, 23 through 25. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written on a scroll, that they were inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives 
and that in the end he will stand on the earth. Proverbs 27, verse 9. Perfume and incense bring joy to the heart, and the pleasantness of a friend springs from their heartfelt advice. And Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra the teacher of the law to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate, in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. James 3.17, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial, and sincere. So, Kyle, the reason why we had you on is because of, well, the stuff that you kind of alluded to at the top of the uh, episode. My good looks. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that and the fact that you're like a leading, like, geeky Christian creative, you know, and facilitator and... And publisher. Yeah. Doing publishing Publisher and writer and pastor and yeah all those different crazy hats i know yeah so many hats too many (laughs) (laughs) just to kind of start us off here like everything for any game system has to be published any theological work you read that isn't a blog or a social media post has to be published so tell us about publishing (laughs) oh man Uh how how, okay let's 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 start from the basics how do you go from idea to a published work what get us from point a to point b well let's let's just then let's talk about like a book like let's say you've got a a science fiction work that you that you want to get through with because depending on what your idea is like if it's a board game there's a very different set of ways of publishing if there is a science fiction work or if there's a a non-fiction work if it's a theological work that's a very different way of publishing and stuff too so it all depends on what you need beforehand so if we're going to do a science fiction book or a fantasy book uh, you need to have your manuscript done before you start pitching it so that means you've got to have this book already written And then from there, you need to start getting it in front of people. And I know many of us, we've all been to various conventions and things. And and I love going and and meeting the indie authors or, you know, the comic, the graphic novels or whatever. And I ask them about their world. And you can see very quickly who's good at telling you what this is about and who is not. And frequently, most are not. Where it'd be like, well, it's it's kind of like uh, like a dark fantasy, but it's set in an urban environment. And the main character, well, before I tell you about the main character, there's these other characters that are very important to this. And it just goes on and on. I'm like, I've lost interest. Once you've got your manuscript, you've got your idea, you've worked for a year writing this thing, perfecting this thing, you think you've got it good. Then you need to figure out how to say it in a few sentences. That was actually a big thing that I learned uh, from from a totally different job, actually, uh, where I was doing archive work for a nuclear research facility. And right around the end of my work term, there was uh, a project sort of put forth by one of the scientists where it's like, we will give every summer student here 30 seconds to tell us exactly what they do and make <laughs> us understand why it's important. Oh, man. <sighs> um, I was I was given the easy job because... I was like, I am organizing these documents so that they can be properly recovered and stored safely 
within governmental guidelines uh, on uh, federal, provincial, and municipal levels. That was it. That was my pitch. <laughs> that, that, and that was my job. A lot of other people had much more complicated jobs than I did, and it was a lot harder for many people. And, and it does bear mentioning that that's not nearly as exciting as I figured out ways to make it so people could access radioactive notebooks safely. Well, that came kind of in the middle <laughs> and it was sort of a side project that just so happened to become one of my more proud moments. So, but you, you know, did do that. I did do that. Man. I did do that. So you lived in the Fallout <laughs> world. This is what I'm I'm hearing. <laughs> so when, when the post-apocalypse come, again, not getting political, I want mm -hmm. you on my team. <laughs> <laughs> always bring the archivist, always bring the librarian. <laughs> And the vet. That's the other one we need. Yep. And the vet. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So basically, once you've got once you get your manuscript um, and you've got your pitch. So this is what's going to get in front of and, and catch the attention of of somebody like me when we're we're accepting submissions. And, and once we have that, then we're going to ask for a query, which is now you're going to you're going to section out kind of like your the first 10 pages and they have to be great pages. So you have to immediately get me to care about your character. Uh, you want to get me a hook on the story. Like there can be things where questions aren't answered, but they have to inspire me to desperately want to know, to continue to read on. And that's one of the things that we've seen a lot. It was like we've we've got some queries. Oh, wow, this is really good. We've gotten the you know, we've got we've got the first 10 pages. We're really excited about it. And then we read the whole book and we realize, OK, it still needs some work. And so once you've finished your manuscript, considering an editor is is always, always important. There are several different types of editors, but this idea that you need to you need to edit your work and your work needs to be edited by somebody that's not you. They're the ones that are going to point out all your plot holes, all your flaws, all the things you didn't miss. If you're doing board games, they're going to be pointing out things like, you know, person four was bored because when it's one other person's turn that takes 20 minutes, there's nothing they can do. And that's not to make for a good game. It's boring. And so how do you increase interaction? So things like that where you can start to refine and test and and go through. So those are all really, really important. Anybody who's not you will be able to give you at least some degree of help if they're serious about it, in my experience. Right. Like, I remember my my mom likes to write, too, and she um, she's retired now. So she gave me like a story that she'd been writing and it's kind of a, a metaphor for anxiety with this this girl that's seeing dragons all over the place. And I was like, you know, I read through it and I was like, so these these dragons are in her head, right? They're, nobody else is seeing them. That's why they're ignoring them. And she's like, no, no, they're real. And I was mm. like, well, then somebody needs to interact with one. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> no, and, and, and that's what it is, right? Like you test. You test, 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 test everything. And, and see what you like and see what people like. Hey, would you mind reading this chapter? What did you think? What did you like? What didn't you like? Did you feel attached to these characters, et cetera, et cetera? That's, that's super good. And that's just now you've kind of got the rubrics and now you need to try and find a publisher or make the decision to publish yourself. And that's a very different field than actually writing. And that's where a lot of people will start to stumble or get intimidated by. Or get taken advantage of if they go to the wrong mm -hmm. place. Oh, very much mm -hmm. so. It is a deep, dark world of publishing. And, <laughs> and, and and it's interesting when we started a publishing company, like we talked with several authors that we we're very good friends with. And many of them have had very negative, very negative experiences at some point in time in their careers with a publisher. 
that took advantage of them, that uh, the relationship broke down. There is a whole lot where things can go wrong on that. And so it can be scary. And yeah. Yeah. So we're we're hoping to build a company that isn't that way. <laughs> so um yeah. So if we were to talk about like the idea of publishing, like once you get into the publishing side, so now you got once you, you want to get the attention of a publisher, there's many different types of publishers out there. So if we're talking about books primarily, uh, you're gonna get this idea of self-publishing, which is for the most part, you have all the tools available to do it. It is technically possible for you to do it. There is a whole new set of skills that you should acquire if you want to be successful at it, but it's certainly possible. But you are responsible for everything. So you you have to get your cover layout. You have to get a copy editor. You have to get your actual editor. You have to get a layout editor. You have to get all of the cover art. You have to do all of that yourself. You have to set up your own business. You have to set up your own taxes. You have to set up all of your own marketing, <laughs> all of your own ad streams. Again, it is still possible, but it is a lot of back end work. And if somebody's capable of it, I think you should. You also reap all of the benefit from that all of like you're not splitting royalties with anybody uh you are setting your own prices you are in complete control uh you can market the book for as long as you want etc cetera, etc cetera. there's just so much freedom in that learning all of those additional skills is not worthless either i would imagine even if it is a lot of work right right and then you can go all the way to the other side which is like your full out you know massive big name publisher which is what your random houses. Exactly. And stuff. So the ones with the big names. And and if they if they decide to publish your work, what they'll do is they'll 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 send you out a contract. Uh, you'll go through and it'll be several tens of pages uh, go through. And, and in that, you'll go through and you'll sign it off. And what you'll see on that side is that they maintain a lot more control. So that would be things like they're going to probably be doing cover art, title. Uh, they'll manage all the editing. They'll manage all the layout. They'll manage all the marketing. Well, most of the marketing, you're still responsible for some. They'll do all of that. They're responsible for distribution, for all of that. And then you gain a certain royalty from that. So it's a, they do a lot more of the back end work. Then there's this huge swath in the middle. And, and publishers, because self-publishing has kind of started to grow, publishers are starting to feel that. So they're having to change some of their business models. But you have some of these things in these middle ground areas that are just predatory. That'd probably be the best way that I'd put it. And I'd, I'd want to warn anybody against this idea of vanity publishers. So what a vanity publisher would be is something where uh, you'll have a big name publishing house. And they'll have a vanity publisher. So basically, you're going to do exactly the same thing. You're going to get the name of this popular publisher put onto your book. But instead of them signing you on a contract and, and publishing your book and paying for all of the, the cover art and all the rest, you actually have to pay them up front to do all of that work. And you still lose all control and you still lose most of your royalty and all the rest, <laughs> all for a little stamp on your book. And so I'm... Uh, when as as writers, both uh, all of us that are involved in Mythos and Inc., we felt very, very strongly against those types of things. So we wanted to be a, a beacon in the middle. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, and we consulted with with several writer collectives of what would be more of a favorable contract. And so we we worked out all that stuff. But yeah, after you've got it published, then you're going to be looking at layout. You're going to be talking to art uh, cover artists. What we what we prefer to do is we go to Comic Cons 
and we meet all of the artists there all those people that are drawing some incredible things and putting it up in their booth they all have certain incredible styles and we've hired several of them to do the covers for our books they're 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 local they're talented they're unique at we've had nothing but great experiences it and it can be a lot of fun working that way because then you get to know people and building more of your idea uh and then once you get into the publishing side then you get into the printing side and this is just like okay now i've got it all set up now what how am i going to <laughs> how is this going to actually become a physical item in somebody's hands or a digital item on somebody's kindle and oh my goodness like <laughs> There is so much in this field. I, I feel like I'm, I could just talk and talk and talk. Like, what else do you got before I get there? <laughs> um, as as a librarian, may I make a request? Absolutely. I don't know how much control we have over this, but please, for your nonfiction, put the Dewey Decimal number right in that that <laughs> like little blurb of copyright mm -hmm. info and stuff like that. Because only Canadian publishers do that. Americans are freaking cheapskates. They don't give me anything to work with. Yeah, actually. It... Unfortunately, Jenny, you know you're talking to another Canadian uh -huh. already, right? I know, I know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Well, one, one of the rules in Canada. So uh, you have what is called an ISBN number. So this is kind of like your, your barcode that identifies this unique format of this book. By, by the way, hang on, this, as the former bookseller, I will chime in yeah, absolutely. here. If you have that ISBN number when you're going to buy something, every bookseller and librarian you interact with will love you. <laughs> that stands for International Standard Book Number. Unless you are looking for anything by Yen Press, Kodansha Publishing, or any manga kind of thing. Because, wow, the ISBNs are shared, and it sucks. Oh, man, that would be difficult. How do you distinguish? Oh, it's so bad. It's so, so bad. Well, uh, in Canada. Sorry. Well, because you have to buy those ISBN numbers, and that's, that's, mm -hmm. that's an upfront cost. But in Canada, hint, hint, they're free. So we can acquire free ISBN numbers. But as a trade-off for us getting free, we need to essentially submit our work to our national library so all Canadian published works are are recorded and all have copies in various places. To be able to do that, we have to have proper copyright information in the front of the book. So that's why you yep. can thank the Canadian government. Yep. Although I have found some. I'm looking at you, Random House Canada, Penguin Random House Canada. I'm looking right directly at you. Sometimes they don't. That's fair. I'll make sure. I'll, I'll make a note to send yeah, to our, like, our editing director. Sure. <laughs> or or she will she will uh you know face the wrath of Jenny at this point. A tiny former rugby player <laughs> will be coming for you. Oh man. So yeah, uh there there is so much to to just this part of things, right? Like you're talking about the copyright information. Um, like one of the things that 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 frustrates us is we'll see we'll see Christian books that are published, and we know inside the book they'll cite whether it be like various Bible verses from the NIV or uh, NRSV or whatever, whatever version there is. There is legally copyright information that you should have on that copyright page that so many books don't have. Mm -hmm. And and that and that that opens you up to because those translations are copyrighted, yes. right? And and you're you're okay to use them, but you must include that copyright bit. And if you don't, you are opening yourself up for litigation. Think of this, by the way, as like the theological version of the open gaming license that you see in every like yes. third party three E and five E D and D book. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
it's just like the Creative Commons license is just like that too. Like you have to include those things. And if you don't, um, I mean, are they going to do anything? Maybe, maybe not. But I'm I'm very much on the board of, well, if we're Christians, we should be above board. These should be things mm-hmm. that we care about, even though it might not come back to bite us in the butt. Well, and not only that, but I mean, if you know your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed, you sleep much easier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> And that's that's some of the things that we that we have really researched and learned. And the amount of law that I've had to read as a publisher now is insane. Uh, And and in fact, like I'm a Canadian and I have called the IRS probably more than most Americans ever have. So (laughs) (laughs) considering that I've called them never, probably. Yes. (laughs) uh, I'll say this much. They've been remarkably helpful every time I call. So (laughs) from what I understand, they're great to deal with as long as they don't contact you. Yeah, that would make sense. (laughs) If you contact them, they are nothing but helpful. Oh, man. If they contact you, you just want to hope that they don't do it with a SWAT team at 2 (laughs) a.m. Glad I live in Canada. Okay, go on. (laughs) Okay, so um, before we get too far away from printing, printing is done all over the world, Mm -hmm. right? And and a lot of it is done in Canada. But one of the things that kind of was in the gaming news recently is Uh you got to be kind of careful when you print in different countries because they may have uh, rules and laws that affect things that aren't even meant to be sold where they're printed. There was a... um, a Call of Cthulhu book called the Sassoon Files that was kickstarted a while ago, and the Chinese government burned the entire print run of it because it didn't pass their censors. Yeah. And this was something not for sale in China. It was just, there was something in there that they didn't like, and yeah. so now this, fortunately, the, the printing company refunded the costs to the people who did the Kickstarter, but they've got to start over on that. Mm-hmm. So I remember I like I read about that and and there are several. So working with China is an interesting animal because it's both good and bad for those reasons where you can get things you can get things done for a very decent quality at a very great price and working with people. But sometimes there's these weird regulations that crop up. And I know this book was set in Shanghai, which is kind of it it portrayed time travel, like a, a revisionist history that he, Chinese government was not a favor of. So they burned everything. But when I heard the story, I thought I'm like, he got refunded. This is great publicity. He'll be OK. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that particular guy will probably be fine. But it's mm-hmm. just kind of like, whoa, you know, there was a there was a lot of discussion around that. So, well, and then, I mean, you start dealing with things like tariffs and shipping times and you know i mean we don't want to get too political with this but there's there's a lot to consider if you're shipping something literally to the other side of the planet across like you know an ocean and multiple time zones to a country that speaks a different language uses different currency and you know you've got international trade treaties and stuff to deal with too i imagine that's all a headache well for the most part what's nice like if if you're an american uh, most of this world is going to operate on a usd basis so united states dollars basis but being as a canadian like i'm very aware of when our dollar goes down or up because that drastically affects how much i'm paying for printing it it drastically affects my job because it changes how much i have to pay for books yeah like a lot of the time it's it's ah! <laughs> it's very scary a publisher a librarian and a former bookseller talk about book costs. oh my goodness 
<laughs> well, and and in terms in terms of printing though, like there are there are lots of different ways. And from a from a publisher standpoint, one of the things that they could do is you know you print off, you have a whole bunch of stock, then they keep the stock, they maintain the stock, and then they distribute the stock, which means they have relationships with various places, bookstores, etc., and then they sell off those copies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they kind of manage all the stock. So that means if you're going to do it that route, then you got to find a printer, somebody that you're going to meet with, you're going to print multiple copies. Uh, you'll probably save more because you're going to print by a ton of copies at the same time and have that for yourself and, and go through with that process. Or there's print on demand, which is probably at least from a self-publishing. And it's it's actually what we uh, invest in as well is it's you, you'll lose a bit on the printing because they're printing each individually, but uh, you don't have to maintain stock. You don't have to maintain a warehouse and keep things climate controlled and not worry about, you know, the flood that happens and whether or not all your stock is going to be super wet and lose all of that money. It's a so yeah. there's, I mean, even ambient humidity will do a number on books. Exactly. Too, is, if you need a climate controlled storage space for books, if, if you want to sell them. And so uh, that's always the big challenge and the struggle. And one of the reasons why some people will go with a very traditional publisher, because they will maintain that stock. They will have that all set up and ready to go. And so and then you're not worried about those types of things. So on a self-publishing thing, that's why I, pretty much every self-publisher will just do a print-on-demand version. Uh, what's really nice about print-on-demand, especially through Amazon KDP or Ingram Spark, is that their turnaround time is is negligible. You, you you rarely would notice. And with all online sales the way things are now, it's pretty much your number one selling market. Well, and if you want like 30 copies for a book signing or something like that, I imagine they can just do that right away. Yeah. Right? So if you're printing through Amazon, for instance, if you're going through their KDP publishing and uh, what, what happens is you, you submit your book and do that. But you also do get an author rate uh, for that book. So you can have that. You can ship that to yourself and you're free to sell those uh, as you see fit to wherever, however, what you want to do with. Uh, but it's still listed on Amazon. And so all of the books that get sold on Amazon, you're getting a royalty kickback from that. That's and, and all of those like it's still a very viable business opportunity. And because uh, as self-publishers or or small indie publishers like ourselves, we don't we can't maintain a lot of overhead. We want to keep those margins, uh, at least those expense, those expense uh, numbers very, very low so that we can ensure that the best happens on the other side of things. So, yeah, print on demand. We're 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 fans of that. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of it, it was a little rough at the beginning from what I understand, but it's evolved into pretty nice technology. Oh, yeah. Plus, it's it's less wasteful, too. Right. I mean, you, if something isn't as much of a hit as some publisher has to try and predict it is, eh, you know, it's just some file sitting on a hard drive after a certain point. Yeah. Right? If somebody wants a copy. They can have one, but. You don't have to pulp all of these mini cases of books and mm -hmm. well, and and the last thing you want is is to have like those you know those fifty copies that you forgot about in your basement once <laughs> moldering away. <laughs> you know, once now gathered dust and the mice have eaten and made a home in, and it's like that could be a few hundred dollars worth of stock that is just gone and wasted, and mm -hmm. and you don't want that to happen. I would say this too, like so. If you were if you were ever thinking of going that that print on demand route, uh, Amazon is Amazon, so they're smart and they're savvy, and so they'll offer you a higher royalty rate for your books if you exclusively sell on Amazon. And there are pros and there are cons to that. Uh, there are various Amazon programs that you can sign up for, kind of like rental programs or library style programs where you can borrow things from them. And and you do get something from that, but you're going to lose out on 
other distributors. You know who else does that, actually? Drive-Thru RPG. Yes. Uh, they offer a 5% higher rate if you are exclusive to them than if you're not. And from a business model sense, I totally get that. I mean, if I was running Drive-Thru RPG, I would do the exact same thing. If you want to make this exclusive, I'll pay you more. Sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we don't have to compete with, you know, your private store or whatever. Exactly. I will say, does make it harder for librarians because every time I order a book from Amazon because it's an Amazon exclusive author, my my board gets kind of angry with me and they're like, why? I'm like, because it was requested and it's a guaranteed circulation number. <laughs> I, I, I don't know, like please i'm i'm a big fan like the two big players in this space would be ingram spark and amazon and so i'm yeah. a big fan of using both of those if you're going to go the print on demand route uh with ingram spark you can have it be your one-stop shop and allow that to then go they can manage all of the amazon stuff for you if you want uh, i don't recommend that just because then you're working through two different companies and each one is taking a royalty from it but it's it's certainly possible so what we do is we do uh primary distribution through ingram spark but we also do amazon and we do amazon as a as an addendum to it where we usually make most sales through amazon because it is amazon after all but yeah they are definitely mm-hmm. the not it, they're like the 1200 pound gorilla <laughs> yeah <laughs> at this point <laughs> like, no it's like kidding. The, you know dire gorilla yeah. <laughs> <laughs> as as interesting as this is, like if if somebody out there, one of our listeners or something, has got let's say let's say they've written up like an RPG supplement Ooh. that is system agnostic or something, and they want to get it out in physical form to say Barnes and Noble and to specialty game stores. So what would that look like for them? Because I know actually there's at least one listener of ours who has multiple things published on um drive through rpg and there's some other folks that i know of from the fear of the boot forums and community that have printed stuff through amazon so it's definitely something that people do so what does that look like well again getting into the rpg market because that is another like whole huge game and it depends on what you want your distribution channels to be like are you thinking just like you know the shops that you know and that you love and going through that are you thinking about going to cons and distributing it there or are you thinking about i want to just sit in my home and let everybody else purchase it from somewhere and then it just automatically gets into their shops like barnes and noble and things like that um most of these all of these still require a lot of work on your end in order for the distribution this requires phone calls this requires uh employing a you know, a street team to make the requests of libraries that they want to read this book or RPG supplement. I don't know if our libraries these days are stalking those. I haven't seen any, but oh yeah, I am. Okay, good. <laughs> I I'm a small library. I I just I just recently uh cataloged my my second full fully blown RPG. Technically, uh, the previous one was technically a zine. I had to make up a new cataloging thingy just to catalog that one. It was really interesting. Um. And the second one I've done um, was a copy of Don't Rest Your Head. Oh, yeah. That's actually, that's that one's so interesting that that's worth being in a library just as an example of what you can do with the mm-hmm. medium. Oh, for sure. Unfortunately, Wizards of the Coast is not willing to give anything to my supplier, but some people have made some sneaky supplemental material that I am allowed to get through my supplier. So, so I, I am able more easily to get supplemental material than actual like D&D itself. It's very interesting and very frustrating. Well, and along those lines, just since we're talking about 
role-playing games and libraries specifically, like we, we have another librarian in our gaming group. And I know that through the library that he works at, he actually runs Pathfinder for some teenagers. It's gotten legitimized, I think, probably thanks to some of those huge actual plays like Critical Role and the Adventure Zone. And Critical Role has literally been brought up like in like budgeting stuff. Like I, I am not joking. Critical Role is probably going to be brought up when I next go to my board meeting that I have to go to. Like them or hate them, but they've certainly done a lot for exposure of the hobby and the industry and legitimizing it. So, and I'll probably be able to to make a reference to Magic: The Gathering as well, because like another way that RPGs get into libraries and into public spaces in general is through other slightly more visible games like Magic: The Gathering. We have a Magic: The Gathering program at my library. I can probably make the argument through that as well that I need D and D in my library and I need it now. And you should give me the money to to put D and D in my library. Well, and and I think one of the mistakes that a lot of people are going to make in this space is that assuming you know doing the the field of dreams of well, if I write it, people will read it, and and that's simply not the case. Like you have to still get boots on the ground, like. You know, when it, it it is very exponential. So you need to get getting that first store to stock it and then getting them to, OK, how do I get them to, you know, it, is it selling well? Can I help market it so it does sell well in the store? So then I can use this as, you know, evidence that this will sell well in other markets. And then you go from there. So it is a it's not just a like, oh, it's a good product. I'm going to hope somebody picks it up, but it has to have a reputation. And that reputation is slow and it can go through. And part of it is like going to your local library and running games off of this stuff and getting people excited. Why not? Yeah. Libraries are awesome. I'm a big fan. So. Oh, there's, yeah, it's and it's a fun job. I love my job. It's a great place to work. Yeah. If I if I'd known half of what I know about libraries, like as a workplace that I know now as a result of you and the other player in our group, uh, man, I wouldn't have wasted my time on certain educational pursuits. <laughs> oh, yes. Same. Um. <laughs> OK, so, um, boy, we went off on a lengthy tangent there. I, I guess maybe to try and bring this back around a little bit, like all of the stuff that we were just talking about is the kind of conversations that you need to spark. And I, I think Kyle will probably back me up on this. The more niche your product is, the smaller your audience is going yep. to be. Mm -hmm. A Christian gaming podcast. Yeah, <laughs> like we've been doing this for a long time. Like Saving the Game has been running for significantly longer than most podcasts ever make it to. Like, I, I think they say most podcasts and stuff burn out in the first year. Of the ones that make it a year, I think three years is the next major milestone after that. We're going to hit seven years in like a month and a half here. But our listenership is not huge. Now, the the other thing is, like, because it's such a niche thing, our listenership is this really nice, like engaged, dedicated, warm, intelligent, dedicated community. And we love you people, yes. but we're like the size of a local church in terms of like our, our listenership. We're not huge. Still bigger than so my church. Just, just saying. Yeah. Be, well, <laughs> <laughs> but but like be aware if you're if you're writing something that's really cool and niche, don't go into it with the expectation you know, unless I'm missing something here, Kyle, that you're going to sell tens of thousands of copies of this. You're, you're going to probably sell a hundred or two, right? Well, yeah. And and that's part of that is that because 
I'd love to say that the internet is like, okay, so we are this niche. So I just need to go to this one place in the internet to find all of these people. And that's just not the case. There will be pockets everywhere. And and so when you want to grow that audience past your 100 that you've first gotten, you've got to go into those other pockets. You've got to go out and seek them out because they're not going to find you. They're comfortable in their little niche pocket. So you have to go and introduce yourself and things like that. So like even in Christian gaming ministries, like how many we've got, like I could name off of five or six right off the top of my head. And... Us, uh, you, Inroads Ministries, Love Thy Nerd, Cardboid Koinia, uh, Geeks Under Grace. Yeah, I mean, like, it, go back and look at our guest, you know, host list for the last several years. I mean, some of them have come and gone, but there's there's lots of them. Well, and 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 there's mm-hmm. probably a few that are screaming at us right now that we didn't mention them, and I'm really sorry. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, you are valuable and loved and respected. <laughs> Yeah, we just we have a limited amount of time. So <laughs> but but, yeah. but they all have like they're very loyal, devoted base. And and there are some crossovers. Some people are, are loyal into two or three, um, but not everybody has captured everyone. Like there are people in my community that do not interact. Yeah, we have a, a huge amount of overlap between us and the audiences of Inroads and MinMax, which is one that we really should have mentioned in that original right. batch but mm-hmm. it's like those those two podcasts are like the closest to us you know it's christianity and tabletop gaming once you start breaking it out to like general geek culture ministry or like video games or that sort of thing yeah the the venn diagram is going to have some overlap but it's not going to be almost a circle like with us and inroads or minmax and one of the neat things is that even though we have our little niche audience you know your niche is this very specific type of person there are others and other groups that will be interested in that Um, but they're never going to come into your space to find out that you exist so that would be things like if we're talking about Christian, you know, Christian tabletop RPG sci-fi gamer. So that is unbelievably specific. That is who I am. I probably also watch Star Trek or somebody who watches Star Trek might be interested in this. And so you there is some overlap where we can start to extend and grow a little bit and invite others in. But it is much slower. Um, but as you said. And as you demonstrated when you asked for Patreon questions, they're really loyal. Yeah, they're mm-hmm. fantastic when you can find them. You know, it's it is so important to have that core. Unbelievably important. So yay for saving the game listeners. You guys are amazing. You <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> really are. Yes. Okay, so oh boy, we have diverged from our outline in spectacular fashion of here. Um, <laughs> let's wrench uh, it back into a firm, hard question. Do you need a lawyer to get published? Uh, yeah, that's uh, a good one. I, I would suggest if you've ever got a contract in front of you, yes, get a, get a lawyer to look it over. It is worth its weight in spades. So for instance, like if we're going to talk about contracts, there's going to be clauses in there that you may not understand or what they really mean. So for instance, a traditional publisher, they could put an out of print clause in there. And what that'll say is it'll say something to the effect of if this book should ever be, if they ever decide to put it into out of print, no longer print copies of this book, then all rights of this publishing rights of this book will revert back to you, to the author, which is great. Wonderful. That seems like a good idea. If you're going to print it out of print, I get my rights back, except what that could also mean is that if they maintain printing it on ebook or on print on demand, it will never go out of print. So you will never get your rights back. 
those are the things you might not consider when you're an author. It was like, oh, there's more to that story. And so that's why you have to have a lawyer look over those contracts. I've had people who, um, one of the other things that you'll see is this idea of in perpetuity. And that's a very scary thing. So the, the mm. downside to traditional publishers and what some publishers have done is, I've uh, so I've signed my contract, I've given you my book, you've marketed it. It did a little well for the first you know six months of the year, but then it just kind of trailed off and I'm not interested in the book anymore. I'm no longer marketing it, I'm no longer investing in it, but I'm I'm also not giving it up. So that means I can't do anything. That book is not making any money and I can't do anything for it. You're not investing in it. It's just sitting on a dusty shelf, not being distributed anywhere in a dark warehouse known as intellectual property because they own it. They own the publishing rights in perpetuity. Uh, there's also things like, well, you've written a book in the Harry Potter universe or whatever universe yours is called. They could also do an in perpetuity thing in terms of anything that you write in this world with these characters, I get first right of refusal for. So knowing what that means, and if you're not okay with that publisher having that, then those are some of the questions that are going to come up. There are so many little tiny nuance of things that are so important for you to understand because you really could sign your book away and lose it forever. And that would be the worst thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is one of the things that's kind of nice about self-publishing, right? Is you don't have to worry about any of these intellectual property considerations because you own everything. Well, you do and you don't. Because even though you own everything, what happens when you didn't realize it at first, but after you've uh, written the book, published the book, and made money on the book, realize that, wait, I read a book, you know, five years prior that this one is remarkably similar to, and now you're being sued. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and now they're coming after you. And that does happen. Mm -hmm. And so at that point, too, like even though you're doing the self-publishing route, it, it, it's a challenge. And so that's one of the things of like, it's a good idea to have a lawyer on board to know those things, <laughs> to to be able to be impacted in those ways. And so I, I can't. And it, it's one of those things of like you find a good entertainment lawyer. They don't have to be so uh, I've, I've talked with lawyers who call themselves. They're like, we're not great lawyers, but we're pretty good. <laughs> and, like, and, and, and what I love about those lawyers is they'll say like if you're doing like if this is like a million dollar problem I am not the lawyer for you but if this is a hundred thousand dollar problem then I'm the lawyer for you and most lawyers that I've spoken to are very okay with understanding that difference <laughs> <laughs> look I only have nine levels in lawyer okay not 23 <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's very much the case and and get a lawyer that's representative of that one. So, yeah, I, I, I can't recommend enough because you're walking into a world where uh, there are there is a predatory nature to a lot of people out there that will try. Even if you never read that book that it resembles, somebody's going to try. If you're going to make money off your book, someone's going to try and get a piece of that pie for free. Mm -hmm. It's just the nature of the game. So you have to be prepared for that. Oh, and be really, really. And, and this is just true for pretty much anything. Be really careful not to sign with a publisher that won't let you look let let your lawyer look at a contract oh man anytime you are given a contract and you say can my lawyer see and the publisher says no 
then don't. Is it? Well, <laughs> it's not worth <laughs> nice it. Nice meeting you. <laughs> Stand up and walk out. Oh, man. Yeah, man. And and you know what? Like even on a publishing side of things. So like I've looked at because we were trying to develop what what is going to be our publishing contract. What are we going to include and not include? In negotiating with our lawyers, uh, they wanted me to include uh, a lot of these clauses. They're like, this is a terrible business idea. You should have everything in perpetuity. You should have an out-of-print clause. And I'm like, no, here's how we're going to do it differently. And and after I explained everything, our lawyers eventually said, yeah, this this makes sense. And so, <laughs> like, for instance, for us, like, instead of an out-of-print clause, what we will say is we'll have two dates. We'll have one where it's exclusive printing rights. We'll have one, you know, set of years. And then we'll have another set of years where we still get exclusive printing rights, but we need to maintain a certain level of revenue for that book. And mm. so that means we still have to be invested in this book. And if we're not... If we are just not going to be invested, then it goes back to you, the author, to do with as you please. Because we think that's only fair. And that means that if we're doing our job, then we get to keep it. If we're not doing our job, then we give it back. <laughs> like it's yeah. Yeah. just little things like that. Like it, it doesn't really change things, but it shows that we have a genuine heart and want to do things differently. So, mm-hmm. Well, and it, it shows, you know, that sort of thing is like just wonderful to see as somebody who's actually doing the creative work. Like, um, I remember the, the two published short stories that I have, I, I did the, the sojourn anthologies that got put out by through the boot, you know, back in 2013 and 2014, they had something in there where it's like, we have exclusive publishing rights to this for a year. Once that year is up. And that I think the year was set by like the street date of the first printed copy. That's usually what it is. Yeah. Everything goes back to you. All of it. All the rights go back to the authors because we're never going to do a second print run of any of this stuff. So it's like, eh, we just kind of want to help some of the people in our community get published. And they did, I believe, like the print on demand through Amazon. And yep. that was that. You know, uh, One thing that was kind of cool about that is because I was working at um, Barnes & Noble at the time, I actually saw some of the first printed copies of that book ever to see retail space. I, I got to unpack them. So that was kind of cool. That's exciting. To get to unpack your own book oh, at your job. Yeah. And then like I, I had like coworkers come back and I was like, look at this. Like, <laughs> Oh, man. When we got so like we we recently published a book uh, called Area of Effect. This was our first publishing. Uh, and this was just kind of like the the compilation of all the things that we did with with Geekdom House over the several years of writers and doing things and like just how does geek culture interact with my personal life and faith? And so we made a compilation of this and we have enough for four volumes. We printed off our first volume and there was so much when we first got the first book, it shipped to our editor and then she, she quickly opens it, takes a picture of it and sends it to me. And I was so miffed because I wasn't there to help open this. <laughs> this is our first oh. <laughs> You can't just open it and send me the picture saying we got it. That's not okay. <laughs> I want to inhale the scent of the new yeah, book. Exactly. Like, that smell is gone forever. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the same once it's been out of the box. This smells like your apartment. This is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. So, um... Just, you know, because you have experience in this, there's got to be some kind of unique, like, challenges and or benefits to working in the Christian and geeky spaces, right? Well, yeah. Benefits, I would say, is... Well, we'll start start with the Christian space. So, Christian space is... What's really nice about it is that people can get really, and I mean really passionate about your work. They become... 
you know, similar in like biblical times of like, I'm following the rabbi uh, very much that way. So you have your camps and. I mean, just look at the the grief when it, Rachel held Evans. Exactly. Died. Yeah. Right. Like the the these become the the prophets that I aspire to, the rabbis that I am gathering the dust off of their feet from. And so you have this. And so that loyalty market that is there will read everything that they do. Uh, so it doesn't matter really what your book is, but you can. And with that, you now know it's like I can better predict how my next book is going to sell. Because I have this die-hard audience. That's great. But on the other side, it is there are camps. And there are certain things where it's like, if you make if you make a stance here, that is going to affect you positively and negatively. And there's pretty much no stance you can take in Christianity that won't do both. There yeah. is the neutral stance, which is I'm just not going to talk about it. So <laughs> yeah, but then you don't have a book. Well, so here, here's the thing: is that I do know, I do know, because I used to be in radio. I used to work with musicians a lot, and and I remember talking to several of these very, very popular musicians that sell out uh, concerts all over, and they would say things like, "I regret the day somebody asks me about this issue," because I'll be honest, but I've avoided talking about it for the last twenty five years. Because they know they're going to lose tons of support if anybody ever asks them about this particular issue. That is a big old sword of Damocles to have hanging over your head. And like they're they're willing to be bold, but nobody has ever asked them. So there's there's also those things where you if you're going to be in the Christian geeky or Christian space in general, you're going to have to make those lines. Where do I sit? Where do I stand? What are my theological beliefs on these issues? Because the moment I publish a book that is pro this or not pro that, I'm pigeonholed. So that means no other author that disagrees with that, that is Christian, will come, will be okay with publishing with me. That's one of the down, like the, the crazy parts of the Christian market. And that's why you'll see like large scale Christian printing houses, they'll play it very, very safe because they don't want any of that controversy. So. You get a lot of like kind of fluffy feel good, like chicken soup for the soul. Pretty kind of much. Stuff. And and or, mm-hmm. or if they can get away with selling tons and tons and tons of copies, then then that's what they're going for. It, it isn't about it. Yes. Else. This is why Joel yeah. Osteen does so well in books. Exactly. So that's the Christian space. So there, there's a pro and there's a con. Uh, the geeky space is actually quite similar, right? Like we get really passionate things about about geeky things. Uh, <laughs> um, but the challenge with publishing in the geeky space, especially like if we're going to talk about like science fiction and fantasy and even like RPG supplements now, uh, it is so saturated because mm-hmm. of the because all of us that are these these geeks like we we understand at least in some way our creativity and we have this burning desire to get these stories out of us and publish them and so to publish into the science fiction space it could very easily just be unbelievably overwhelmed with everybody and their dog has a book and so there's just this massive saturation of trying to stand out in that space can be very very challenging and by the way quality doesn't seem to be the thing necessarily that distinguishes that like i i remember reading a a series of books that one of my friends recommended to me that the, the Baba verse series <laughs> um, it's, and it's this science fiction series. That's kind of the stakes are relatively high, but the guy's writing style is such that it's a very low stress and relaxing read. 
And it follows like this very, I don't agree with this particular character's worldviews on a lot of things, but he's very just like a decent and forthright and kind of compassionate person Mm -hmm. that gets used as the basis for these sapient free floating probes. And there's a whole like post-apocalyptic dimension to it. They're really good reads. They're, They're tons of fun. He's not published by a major publisher. He's some little self-published. I've never seen a physical copy of one of these books. Everybody that I know that's read a copy, and there's like three or four people, have read them in ebook form. I don't even know if physical copies exist. I haven't looked it up. They do. They're hard to find. I tried to get one for the library. It's (laughs) hard. (laughs) So, but I mean, it's like, that's something that's a very high quality, and I think most people who read science fiction would probably enjoy it if they came across it, but he's an unknown. And see, that's where that's where somebody like in my position uh, with Mythos and Inc. So I'm the marketing director. And and when those things happen, marketing, I think, is the difference. And so you, you talk about books like like we could talk about Divergent and Hunger Games, for instance, which are which are great stories. Mm-hmm. But the quality of writing is not Hemingway esque. Like it is not earth shattering. Some of it feels a little simple or stilted or broken. Or we could talk about Twilight. I don't feel the Twilight writing is all that strong, but for some reason it gripped the hearts. So there's there's various various things. There's the, you know, what is the genre of the day, right? And at the time that Twilight came out, it was all about vampires and werewolves. That was a huge thing mm-hmm. at the time. So it dropped at the right time. So you just timing was one thing, but there was also marketing. A ton of marketing went into promoting this book to putting it out there a lot of money backing it put getting it there was likely uh, a lot of money put into getting it onto a bestseller list so that people can say oh it's a bestseller then i will try it and i will ingest it and so there there's so much involved with the marketing space that we would say with if you're doing a film you can have like terrible visuals but if you have great audio it makes up for it but if you have great visuals and terrible audio it doesn't make up for it in, 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 in writing, in, and sadly, with book sales, great marketing can, can pave the way over some of, the, some of the flaws of the book. But you could have a great book well, and poor marketing. Just look at the horrible Fifty Shades yeah. series. Right? But, mm-hmm. but you... Yeah. I mean, that's, that's unily, universally acknowledged as not only like morally repugnant, but just horribly <laughs> written. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I can't comment because I haven't read it, but I'm glad that you I, have. <laughs> I work for a bookstore and several, I have not read it either, but several of my coworkers at the bookstore read it. And one of them was like, I made it about three pages and I literally threw the book away. Oh man! I didn't put it in the recycling. I threw it in the garbage. One of my favorite pictures <laughs> I've ever seen was a secondhand bookstore made a book fort just out of copies of Fifty Shades that they had received. Yeah, <laughs> yeah actually, I've seen that. Uh, I've seen similar things done at like thrift shops with the Fifty Shades books that have been all donated. And <laughs> mm-hmm. See, that that's the horrible thing about secondhand bookstores real quick is if it's good enough where you want to keep it, it's probably not going to be there. Unless somebody has died and their heirs are cleaning out their collection. I'll say this. This this wasn't a formal question or outline, but uh, I, I, I'm a, I'm, I do enjoy going into used bookstores um, simply because I like there's certain there's a few books that I like to find and then I can use them as gifts. But I remember one day I walked into a used bookstore and I found uh, Ender Shadow. So that's written by Orson Scott Card. Oh. And this was a pre-release manuscript version 
that is oh. not to be resold. So this oh. is like this is an art like this is pre arc copy. This is pre advanced review copy, and, and it, yeah. it is different. And it was signed by Orson Scott Card. And I picked oh it up for gosh. seven bucks, and I was so excited. <gasps> oh my gosh! <laughs> I had paid seventy easy for that. Oh so yeah, that's, that's like oh, for my sure. big find of the used bookstore market. So, <laughs> wowzers! Yeah, I mean, you will occasionally find some gold in the dirt. You just gotta be willing to and dig, dig and, and dig, dig and dig and dig and dig yeah. and dig. Mm. And dig, and dig. <laughs> Going back to this idea of like like terrible writing and things like that, I think it's worth mentioning. What are the things that make good things? Like, what are the things that I'm well, like that we would be looking for or things like that? Can we talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. yeah, 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 and, yeah. and I ask because my <laughs> editor would kill me if I didn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, by all means, this is one of the things we've got you right. here for. So the way that we work, she is going to be handling most of that stuff. So if I answered this without her input, she would kill me. So I, I asked her. And so she writes, she writes a few things here and I'm, I'm just going to read them from her. She says, number one, it needs a good hook. And so this is going back to the pitch conversation. I need to be gripped by it. I need to be instantly intrigued, have visuals in my head, instant care of what is going on. Uh, a hook, not bagged with questions of like, I don't understand. This is confusing. You know, back to the to the dragons conversation. Does other people see the dragons? Are they real? Are they not? You know, those types of things, but something that is tangible. And then the thing that we have, because I asked her, what is the thing that we most reject books for? And number one was good dialogue. We people who don't have good dialogue that is that is believable dialogue, dialogue that has tension to it instead of just general conversation. The way that I would describe this is when I did when I did interviews when I was in media and broadcasting, uh, I loved interviewers like well, at the time it was Letterman. Colbert was phenomenal for it. You have Sean Evans on YouTube. They will ask questions. And they genuinely listen to the answer. But these questions that they ask, they are trying to get to the part, to the heart of something where you speak with such passion that I genuinely care. You know who else is really good at that in like the gaming space? Alex Roberts. If you've ever heard backstory, she's mm. really good at getting that sort of information out of these RPG creators. I remember uh, being in a panel, like being at a panel in front of the uh, the Marvel execs. And they had the 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 chief editor, they had the, the CEO and all the rest. And and somebody from the audience threw his hand up and said, you know, what does it take to write for Marvel? I'd, I'd love to be a Marvel writer. And the the chief editor stands up and, and he starts speaking. He says, you know, for to write for Marvel, it, it isn't about it, our, our, our focus isn't about how many books you sell. What I want to know and what I want to see in your story is, is this story going to change somebody's life for the positive? I don't care if one person reads it or if one million people read it or if 10 million people read it. I want to know that those who read it have had their lives changed in such a way that their lives are better after. If you can write a story like that, then I want you to write for Marvel. And the whole room just goes quiet. And I'm like, in, I've never had this desire to write for Marvel, but in that moment, that's all I wanted to do because you could sense the passion <laughs> that he was yeah. speaking of how important this was to him. And so if, well, and that's Stan Lee's oh, ethos right exactly. there, right? Mm -hmm. And, and, and so with that, if, if you're going to write dialogue in your book, it can't be, how's the weather? 
it, you want to capture those things that just are gripping. The rest can be thrown away in some of your, you know, brief description or things like that. If it doesn't have purpose, you got to have good dialogue. That is huge. From that, after you have good dialogue, you've got your hook. There has to be a way. I have to care about your character. I, I, there, there's a lot that we've read where it's just like, I really don't care if this one lives or dies or if we suddenly change, give me something to care about. And, and that doesn't mean like there's caring can also be on the other side. Like I can both care and hate this character. So if you take, yeah, I want this character to get their comeuppance. Make make you feel something about the character, whether it's good or bad. Like the most wildest roller coaster ride I've ever read for that would be the Thomas Covenant series. Uh, written by Stephen R. Donaldson, and it's a it's a character. This is a guy who has leprosy, and he talks about like right in the first chapter about his life with leprosy, how everyone leaves him, and so he just this isolation, this loneliness. People run from him because he's growing grotesque, and then he kind of hits his head, and he wakes up in this fantasy world where he no longer has leprosy, but he still has all the PTSD of it. So you have this sympathy for this character because he is tortured and hurt, and then he does something horrible because he still has all of this brokenness inside of him and now you hate him for it but you still kind of were sympathetic because you understand where that's coming from and it is so hard to read that's a great character but if i don't care about your character i'm i'm just gonna lose interest and put the book down that's a big one. Uh, continuing to hook the character, uh, hook, hook, continuing to use the hooks for the reader. And those are often the big ones that we we find. Lack of structure, where it's like it feels like it's all over the place. And that's where a good editor will come in board, too. So get your work edited before you send it, too. That'll help your chances. I think we're kind of getting to the end of the stuff that we put in the outline. But um, as we always do when we have somebody on, we give them a chance to plug Ooh. something. And not, not only do we do that, looking at some of the stuff you put in here, like... Mythos and Inc. has a lot of very cool stuff to plug, so <laughs> take some time and do that in some detail, if you okay. would. <laughs> uh, first and foremost, I'd be remiss not to mention, uh, we have a 42-day a devotional book that's coming out on May 25th called Thy Geekdom Come. And this was uh, written from an ecumenical side of things. So we have people from all over theological backgrounds, and we've all come together in this unified document of us all being geeks and recognizing. And and then we had it theologically checked across the ecumenism to ensure that this was a, a great standard. And what we didn't want was quick little five-minute devotionals where you kind of quickly read it and you move on for your day. These are as deep as geeks we like to go. And so we really wanted to reflect that and what this is. So these are really heart-wrenching wrestling style of devotionals when it comes to that. So we have that coming out uh, May 25th. You can pick that up on Amazon or on our website. Other things that we have going on just in terms of if you're interested in in improving your writing, being a part of a community for that, uh, we have something called the Mythmakers Guild. And what that is, is that there are there are a bunch of us writers and every uh, every month we are adding in new assignments. So it could be something like write a, a dialogue between two characters that is this length. And one of our editors will actually help you through that and say, here's where you need to improve. Here's what these things are. So it's got some got some residual course like things. We have some fun challenges in there. We've done progressive stories together. Uh, we've done some world building, stuff like that. So just some ways of learning. On top of that, we've got a podcast that's actually launching this month that we're calling The Wayfarer's Guide to World Building. And I'm I'm the host, and I've got another host with me, Emma Scrumita. We're bringing in experts to help us figure out how to build worlds better. 
and it's not world building experts. It's if I were to do the research about this particular thing, I want to make something that can write the, that can pass the sniff test for it. So, for instance, we'll have an episode in in uh, later this year where we've brought in somebody who actually is an architect who designs underground mines. Ooh. That's gonna go straight to the top of my podcast listening list. He's right, and so we'll talk to him about like, so what are some of the things in some of these things that you've read that just does not make sense? For instance, like if I'm gonna write and create a dungeon, what do I need to be aware of to make this believable to somebody like you? Our first episode that we have coming out, uh, we brought in a songwriter because songs in our works are super important, but we don't. Songwriting is very different than, say, fiction writing or world building or some way, but it is every bit important. Anybody who's read Lord of the Rings knows that songs have something to them. So the first part of the podcast is just talking to this person about some of the things that we've seen where songs were done really, really well in fiction, in video games and other geeky cultures. Uh, one of the and why it was done really, really well. Uh, we're staying away from why things are done terribly because we don't want to. We want to stay positive. But then the second half is we actually figure out he's going to instruct us on how to write a song. And then together we did it. I have to ask, because also a podcaster, uh, what episode length are you shooting for? And how often is this thing going to come out? Because I, I was not kidding. I will be listening to this podcast. <laughs> Uh, will be every every two weeks, and the podcast length is uh, between 40 to 50 okay, minutes. Okay, so pretty similar to us in terms of both length and release schedule. Pretty much, yeah. And, man, I, I have to say, so I'm going to put this up. So the first episode, because it's already recorded and all the rest are ready to go. We did the we did write this song, and I both Emma and I thought this was going to be horrible. We didn't think it was going to work out at all. And then by the end, both of us were like, this worked out remarkably well. We're like, Yeah, it did. And then the songwriter went back home to his recording studio and recorded the song of him singing it for <gasps> us. And so we put that on the <gasps> podcast and all of us were like, this is cool. That is so cool. What we did with it is essentially it's a, it's a creation mythology. So we don't have a world. We want to build something in a world that hasn't existed. Let's start mm -hmm. it with a song. What does that song look like? What does that sound like? Why do people sing it? When do, oh, I'm so excited about it. Other things we got going on, uh, uh, we are currently open for fantasy and science fiction submissions. So if you have a manuscript that you would be interested in, uh, head to our website and and look for the submission process. We would love to hear from you. Uh, we are hoping to be publishing a few more in the next couple of years. And so we'd love to work with you. What length of stuff are you looking for? Well, pretty standard novel length. So we're looking, I'd say 50 to 70 to 80,000 word right. length is kind of what we're looking at. Yeah. Other things that we have publishing that we are coming through, we've got a four story graphic novel that's going to be published very shortly uh, that we're really excited about. Uh, we've also got another like full scale graphic novel that's coming out. And yeah. Oh, and and we're starting something later this summer called the Mythos and Inc. Academy. So we're all about this idea of community. So we want the writers that we are involved with, but also aspiring writers to find a place that is that where we can encourage one another, support one another, and know that like, hey, I've written a book, I'm part of this community, this community is gonna help me push it and market it and that sort of thing. So we're maintaining this community, but we've decided to write an academy where we have courses that people could take. It's a great way to step into the community, see if you like it, you learn something and you move on. So we started this year to do a NaNoWriMo primer course. So this is all about novel structure, getting the basics already down. If you want to do NaNoWriMo, which is a National Novel Writing Month, which you write a whole 30,000 words in a month, 
November. November. The month of <laughs> November. <laughs> I'm I'm dreading it. That's, that's my delay. <laughs> I tried last year with the the uh, game setting book that I was working on, and I was like, I'm out of retail. I don't have to deal with the Christmas crunch. This would be the perfect time. And it, life still asserted itself. I got about twenty six thousand words oh, written, my good- and then it was just like, <laughs> so I made I'm, a little past the halfway mark. Yeah, the highest I've got is twenty three thousand. So you've got me beat. Uh, but, uh, no, actually some of the really cool things. So, uh, the book Divergent, for instance, actually started as a NaNoWriMo. Water for Elephants was oh, also a NaNoWriMo. Water for Elephants did as well. And, and it's, what's really cool about NaNoWriMo is that you just get, it, it's, it's word vomit. And what that means is, uh, you don't have time to edit it. And that's probably a good <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, because you can, you can spend as much time as you need to cleaning it up afterwards. Right. And you should, but like, you know, if you're just like, no, I got to produce. Yeah, it's improv rules. Like if you have to if you have time to think about it, don't take it and just just do it anyway and do the silly thing. And and it might and probably will end up a little bit more interesting than the thing you you agonized over and and second and triple and quadruple guessed yourself on. Exactly. So we've got a NaNoWriMo primer course that our, our editing director is going to be leading and it's it's basic novel structure. So at this point, you can now go into NaNoWriMo with a clear vision and a goal and a structure moving forward. So you're not starting with a blank page, but instead starting with uh, things that you can start to put into and just get your writing going right from day one. So that's coming out in the mid of summer. So you can check that out at our website, mythosinc.com, M Y. T-H-O-S-I-N-K.com. One final question. Where did the name come from? Why Mythos and Ink? Oh, man. This is one of those things where it's like, uh, because I'm I'm primarily a marketer, and so we had like three or four names, and so what we did was we had our, our huge focus group, and then I, I pitch all of the names to them, and then I have them rate them, which ones are the highest, and and did we miss something? Is this going to mean something else? These are all like marketer terms that all the marketing people are going to be like, yeah, that's good. Good you did that. The rest of you, you don't care. It's fine. <laughs> Uh, what we found with Mythos and Inc. is this idea of myth was very, very important to both Allison and myself. This idea of creation and story and where we come from. This It doesn't mean something that is fictional, um, but it is something that is effectively what, what we would call legendary. <laughs> um, the Christian myth is a beautiful myth. It's not fictional, but it is... It is the origin of who we are and who Christ is in our lives. And so we we reflected that with just this idea of mythos. But it also kind of hints at all of those fantastical other myths that we see in this world, right? Everything from, you know, elves and dragons of high fantasy to, you know, the Baba Yetu in in Russian folklore. Did you mean Baba Yaga? Because Baba Yetu, Baba Yetu Baba Yaga. is the song. Is that Baba Yetu is the Civilization Four yeah. song. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. I was like, wait, wait. And it was written by Christopher Tin, and I'm a man, I missed that. My bad. <laughs> one, of, one of the best video game theme songs mm. of all time, though. You can just it sit won back awards. and listen to that one. Like, yeah. Well, you know yes. that that was the Lord's Prayer in Swahili, right? That one? Oh, I love that. That anyway. I did not know until you oh, just told me yeah. now. Yeah. 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 It's the Lord's Prayer in Swahili. Oh, that's awesome. I like yeah. it even more now. <laughs> Yeah, so so the the only video game anything to ever win a Grammy was the Lord's Prayer. There's a, there's a tidbit of knowledge for you. 
Yeah. And so and then the idea of ink, right? Just the idea of writing and, you know, the the hipster Amster sand we had to have, you know, things like that. <laughs> <laughs> Incidentally, Wayfarer was was part of uh, was, was in the running for a company name hmm. and it made it to podcast name. So. Hmm. All right. <laughs> well, Kyle, I, <laughs> we could probably go for another two hours at least because there's there's so many things that we kind of shot past that I would love to go back and get some more detail on. But that just means we'll have to have you on another time. So because we're already a little long yeah. on this one, we usually like to stick to about an hour. So thank you so much for taking the time to come on and talk to us. Uh, it was an absolute blast and pleasure having you on. I was going to say, I, I, I hope the listeners enjoyed because I, I enjoyed being here. And and yeah, if you guys want to uh, be a part of our community and stuff, too, it, we, we open our doors to you as well. So that's where you can ask those questions where it's like, why didn't why didn't Peter ask him this question? Well, now you can ask us. Yeah, I mean, like <laughs> Kyle's around on social media and. Do not be afraid of approaching yeah. this man. <laughs> so, and since we have relatively small listenership, that doesn't mean I've just sent a stampede your way. So <laughs> it'll be okay. Thank you once more for coming on. Uh, from all of us here at Saving the Game, thank you for listening. Take it easy, and we will see you next time. See ya. See ya. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution share alike license. Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.